She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm Sarah Gorski, and I'm joined again by my friend Dawn Sam. Dawn, if I made you right now, forced you to choose your favorite broad of all time, who would you pick? I'm going to tell you the first name that pops into my head. It is not mm-hmm. necessarily my favorite broad. It's just the one I'm thinking of at this moment. I woke up this morning thinking about Charlotte Cushman. Charlotte Cushman? Yes, yes. I was lucky enough to play the role of her in a show called The Lady Was a Gentleman several years ago, pre-pandemic. She's one of these women that was incredibly influential and famous in her time, but has since been, you guessed it, erased from history. That's not connected to the show Gentleman Jack, is it? It's not. That's not the same woman? Okay. It's not. But yeah, so um, sometime in the future, I want to come on your show again and do an episode on Charlotte Cushman because she's fascinating. I will be happy to have you back to talk about her. Today, Dawn, I'm super excited to bring you Dr. Paulina Luisi. Have you ever heard of her? I have not. Well... Dawn and audience, she is awesome. So I'm going to jump right in. So her father is Angel Luisi, uh, and he had been studying law, but he left to join Garibaldi in the Vos campaign and the Paris Commune in 1870. And I didn't do a deep dive into the Paris Commune, but the short version that I understand is that the Social Democrats took over France and the government for like two months. So very like socialist, social democrat. It was a huge radical movement at the time. So her dad is super politically engaged in in that entire movement. And then her mother, Josefina Janicki, She was an an educated woman. She worked as a teacher in Dijon, France. She lived with her parents, and they were Polish exiles. Yeah, I was going to say that that last name sounds Polish. So probably actually it's Josefina, not Josefina, but (laughs) oops, I make these mistakes all the time. So those were her parents, and Angel and Josefina get married in 1872, and they emigrate to Argentina in Cologne. And in 1875, they give birth to a baby girl that they named Paulina. And that's our our broad for today. Paulina is the oldest of seven siblings. Wow. Right? (laughs) And her parents in Cologne, they found uh, a, a, quote, modern school. And they had like very experimental classes like free reading and physical education and nature observation. Oh my God, Um, that sounds fantastic. It does sound fantastic. At the time, I'm sure it was like very scandalous or whatever. Right, right. (laughs) Um, and Anne Hall, uh, Anne Hall, her father founds the Fiat Lux Library, and he also founds a Masonic Lodge. So okay. they're like pretty well known, and they they're pretty active. They're like pretty active members of the community, and definitely focused on education. Like they're they're clearly educators and teachers and leaders that way. Yeah. Definitely, a hundred percent. And then in 1878, they moved to. Paysandu, Uruguay, which is like the border of 
Argentina and Uruguay. Um, And once again, when they're there, they found another progressive school and they kind of keep on this educational pathway. Nice. So I'm not going to do a huge deep dive into like what's going on in South America and specifically Uruguay at this time. Mm -hmm. But the, the general overview is that the state of Uruguay at this time is becoming a lot stronger um, and it's getting more involved in the day-to-day life of its citizens. So they're expanding their education programs and their economics, communications, social legislation. And, and Uruguay becomes kind of the first, quote, welfare state in Latin America. Interesting. Yeah. And part of this whole movement is also establishing a universal vote for men. Right. When we say universal, we mean for men. <laughs> for men. Universal... <laughs> For men. For men. <laughs> <laughs> and naturally, the women are like, what the fuck? <laughs> What's going on? So at this time is kind of the birth of modern Uruguayan feminism as a part of this kind of process. Another thing that's going on in Uruguay at the time is that there is a huge rise in sex trafficking of women, which is strangely enough called white slavery. That's what they called it. Wherein predatory men, sometimes mafia mobsters, but like any D-bag who got into it, would go to Europe and they would be like, ooh, life in the Americas is so fancy. And the parents they were talking to were like, ooh, we could benefit from that. Here, marry our daughter. Mm. And they would like throw their daughters at these guys And they would bring them over to the Americas, specifically South America in this case, and they would become part of the part of sex trafficking. And it was a huge, it was like a huge industry. And this is the first I've heard of it, to be honest with you. And I'm kind of shocked because it seems like a a huge thing that was happening at the time, but it's obviously kind of omitted from a lot of the stories that we hear. Yeah, kind of sex trafficking tale as old as time, right? I mean, ugh, yeah. Yeah. What I found interesting, too, is that when I first saw the the term, I was like, oh, the sex trafficking of of indigenous women. No, actually, it was. I mean, I'm sure that was also happening, too. But it was like the taking of other women from Europe too. like specifically Mm -hmm. the sources I said were talking about how they would bring them from Europe. Uh, And because their families are across the ocean, like there's nothing anyone can do once your daughter's on a boat across the ocean. You can't yeah. do shit to help find her or whatever in this in this time period, right? So all this being said, you know, no no women's vote, all the sex trafficking. It's no surprise that women in general were very much considered like second class citizens. They generally speaking weren't well educated, and they just weren't in many positions of power. So Paulina's parents being super into education and teaching all their kids, including the women, was like a very kind of progressive household to grow up in. It said that her her mother encouraged her to always follow her dreams, even if people said she couldn't because she was a woman. Aww. There was one source that said her dad, who, you know, being a radical socialist, raised her with, quote, an uncontainable desire for justice and liberty. Nice. Sounds like nice parents. <laughs> yeah. Creating a little haven in a rough world for their children. Yeah. Um, both Paulina and Anita, the, her oldest of the younger sisters, became teachers. The, the family moved to Montevideo. Paulina entered the National Teaching Board, and she, and she was like very well recognized. She did very well at school. She was very good. And at 13 years old, Paulina goes to a boarding school. If she was the children of educators and she went to a boarding school, it sounds like they were upper class? Yeah, they definitely weren't like the 
they were definitely at least kind of well-off middle class. So so in general, she's considered kind of one of the bourgeoisie. Uh, so she is considered a little more wealthy than, say, like the indigenous local people for sure. So she goes to boarding school. She's doing, she's kicking ass at school and she keeps going in her educational track. In 1899, she becomes the first woman in Uruguay to earn a bachelor's degree. Oh, wow. And then in 1900, she starts medical school. She is the first woman in Uruguay to enroll in medical school as well. I love it. I love it. But her male classmates weren't super thrilled about it. They <laughs> what were a very upset. <laughs> To have a menstruating person in their presence. What? Um, hmm, crazy. And apparently they harassed the shit out of her. And there's one story I found that said one time during an anatomy lab, she reaches in her pocket and finds that like one of her classmates had put a severed penis into the Oh my God. Oh my God. But she waits until the end of class, at which point she pulls it out and she's like, did somebody lose this? <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Nicely done. So she had to have some moxie to be able to deal with all of this nonsense. Indeed. I mean, she's not dealing with shit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm also going to point out having seen the penis of a, of a cadaver, it's a disappointingly unimpressive piece of flesh. So the fact that she pulled it out and was like, Did somebody lose this is just brilliant. <laughs> I'm just going to have to take your word for that because I have, I myself have not seen a cadaver penis, so I have no experience with that. But I, I, I do trust you yeah, <laughs> that yeah. you wouldn't be so <laughs> What? Um, she persists. She deals with all this stupid harassment. And in, in uh, 1908, she graduates and she becomes the first Uruguayan woman to become a doctor. Uh, it's also worth noting that her sister also becomes the first lawyer. She's the first woman to, to graduate law school, which I kind yeah. of love this like family, obviously, of progressive firsts. Um, and now, you know, given her parentage and her radical daddy, she also becomes starts to become heavily involved in the feminist movement at this time period. And she she also she becomes very active and vocal about a bunch of different issues. And I find I'm gonna kind of just kind of go through what her what the sources say, kind of her general overviewer. Um, some of it kind of I find a little reprehensible because it's it's contradictory in a way. But okay, it's interesting how how people connect things. And I think like I find that it must have been like her her Catholic upbringing. I feel like heavily influenced. The yes. type of women's rights that she was fighting for, and and depending on depending on the situations on the ground, at different times in history, strategic alliances were made that, in retrospect, are f- pretty reprehensible. Yeah, but the you know the women at the time were like, "We'll do whatever works to get what we need." Yeah, and uh, you know, so. This is history. So even even before she graduated, she had started kind of appealing to the government to like, hey, we have to improve sexual education in schools, which at the time was like very scandalous because they didn't teach anything about sex and anything in, in the schools, which makes sense to me. Everybody was very, you know, didn't like to talk about it. Yeah. And, you know, that that strain of thought still exists with, you know, abstinence only education. It didn't work then. It's not going to work now. 
Um, and in addition to just the reproductive knowledge, she also like wanted to teach people about the personal ethics about quote undisciplined sexual activity. And so she believed that sex should not be for pleasure alone, but for the purpose of having healthy children within a marriage, even though pleasure, it's okay if pleasure is a byproduct. Very Catholic. It is very Catholic. The the sources didn't say that, but as I'm reading it, I'm like, yeah, this feels Catholic to me. (laughs) (laughs) She also thought that the state um, should be more active in controlling a bunch of aspects of personal sexuality for the benefit of society. So one of the things she supported is like some form of eugenics measures to prevent parents with transmissible diseases from reproducing. And she also ran campaigns against alcoholism and drug use. And she wanted more regulation of prostitution because prostitution spread venereal disease and, quote, led to degeneration and added mm-hmm. to social woes like poverty and licentiousness. She, wa- she wasn't entirely against abortions. She did support them in the case that, that the fetus would be mentally or physically disabled. But okay. she felt that most abortions were the result of social problems, that the, if the government did more and had more reformations in place, that, that they would be prevented and that the need for abortion would be eliminated if the government did a better job of taking care of its people, which right. like, I don't necessarily disagree with that part of it. Like if the government did a better job, then abortions wouldn't be necessary because it'd be, and if, you know, yeah. And if sex education was, you know, was widely available, then again, you know, fewer abortions would be necessary because people would know enough not to get pregnant in the first place. Right. If they didn't want to. Exactly. But the whole eugenics thing is like, yee, yee. <laughs> that makes my, you know, it makes my yeah. skin tingle and it's, you know, taking it too far. Not cool. Yep. Uh, compared to some other, I feel like, radicals of the time period, it's a much more kind of proper higher society kind of viewpoint, like kind of looking down, it seems like, on on what those issues are and how to solve them, which is right. really interesting and, and not a perspective I've, I've read much on. So I found it all really interesting and I felt like it was important to kind of outline that. But she gets very, very involved at this point in, you know, what is the the modern Uruguayan feminist movement. So... She, in uh, 1916, she founds and leads the National Women's Council branch in Uruguay, and she is the first president of the Uruguayan delegation to the first American Congress of the Child in Buenos Aires. She, in 1916, represents Uruguay at the International Congresses of Women in Geneva and Christiana and Norway. She goes to all these international congresses of women. And she's like the Uruguayan delegate that goes. Nice. In 1919, she starts the Force for Women's Rights, which is an organization in Uruguay. So 1919 would be right after World War One, And it would be right in the height of the suffrage movement in the States. And right after women had been granted suffrage in the UK. So just to sort of, you know, since she is an international figure, to sort of put this in the milieu of she is working at the forefront and would have been in communication with, I would imagine, all of these movements, these international movements for women's rights. Yeah, absolutely. And she's spending a huge amount of time in Europe and and speaking and, and touring at all these different international events. Yeah. Um, she also founds uh, a magazine called Acción Femenina, Feminine Action. Right. Um, she's the founder and she's a primary editor. Um, and it's kind of like one of this, like this progressive feminist magazine that was kind of pushing for 
uh, you know, women's rights, the vote, all of, all the rules she's trying to kind of get through. Sex, the importance of sex education and hygiene, and and as a doctor, the, that word hygiene appears in a lot of her works. Like that was something she was really focused on was the hygiene, public right. hygiene. In fact, speaking of hygiene, in 1923, she's the Uruguayan delegate to the International Congress on Social Hygiene and Education in Paris. I wonder what social hygiene is. Kind of an interesting turn of phrase that we don't u- use anymore, right? It is, right? Uh, my understanding of it is that it's kind of like an umbrella term for kind of like moral reform. I think like mm. prostitution, anti-sex trafficking, anti... Like, I don't think it's like washing your hands. <laughs> okay. Was not All my right. impression of it. <laughs> right, Although I think right. that's a part of it. Part of that is like, you know, preventing venereal disease and, and health education. But I think that it's it was much bigger than that. Cleaning up the po- these poverty-stricken places and lifting people out of, of those situations, I think, is a huge part of that movement. Um, although I have to say, I have to admit, I didn't deep dive into that specific term. So that's my guess based on kind of these other things I've been reading. Uh, the other things that she's working on. Yeah, yeah. So the member of the League of Nations Consultative Committee uh, brings her in, and she she's part of the Committee on the Treaty to End Traffic in Women and Children. Nice. And that's like from 1922 to 1925. She becomes the first woman in the Western Hemisphere to be an official government appointed delegate to an intergovernmental conference when she goes to the first international conference of the American states in Santiago nice. in 1923. She's also one of five women to attend the World Disarmament Conference in 1932. Good on her. So she's doing all this international work, but she's still kind of loud at she's still active and loud at home kind of at the same time, but she's definitely got this huge international spotlight on her, which is most definitely kind of helping the cause back at home, right? Right, yeah. You know, the whole time she's touring and and doing her, her speaking on women's rights and children's rights and anti-sex traffic in Europe, um, she's also really holding the flag at home to try to get them to pass the women's rights. Women still don't have the right to vote, right? And there's this awesome quote from her that I think that was published in her in Axion Feminista, which was, quote, when we hear, as a few months ago, the men entrusted by the people to reform the Magna Carta of the nation claim with unconscious sufficiency, that the mission of women is to guard of the home and the procreation of children, we thought bitterly of the servant's home as we women. We were thinking of the thousands of women who, along with men, but with less pay than him, work from sunrise to sunset in factories and workshops, in the innumerable female employees who cruelly forced to do so for a meager salary are locked up in the workshops." In others, more miserable still that at the price of a starvation wage, they sew 14 and 16 hours for the records. In the telephone operators who, with 15 absences in a period of 13 months, lose their jobs. And we wonder what wild irony or what obtuse unconsciousness inspired the words of those constituents who had no qualms about denying women the right to life as a citizen in the name of all most sacred duties. I love that quote. That yeah. one. That's wonderful. It, it really stood out to me. Yeah. yeah. But um, so she's she's fighting and fighting. And then finally, finally, in 1932, Uruguay gives women voting rights. Yay! They are only the second Latin American country to do so at the time. Wow. And she was okay. still in Europe doing all, traveling and doing all this stuff at the time the law passes. But immediately when she finds out about it, she flies home and she's like, okay, it's time to go. It's go time. Right. And she begins, she begins giving radio speeches. 
she becomes kind of the the female voice of the socialist party. Her on-air name is Abuela, which we know is grandmother. But she goes on the radio and she starts speaking about women's legal rights and political equality and women's right to speak. If they were granted the right to vote in 1932. So mm-hmm. she would have been 25 plus 32. So she's in her 50s now. Mm-hmm. I love also that she was using the radio, that she like yeah. went on the radio, you know, that she's like, she's grabbing hold of this new tool to reach the masses and, you know, using it to spread her message. That's brilliant. I love that. I mean, the radio too, at this point in time is like what the most powerful way to speak to anybody. So everyone exactly. listens to the radio. Exactly. And so that voice is really strong. She becomes yeah. kind of this, this progressive voice of the whole country. In 1942, there's a set of elections in Uruguay, and the, the first four female legislators uh, are, are elected um, to the government. And she was like, she was trying to run for office, but at this point, she's seeing some successes, and she's generally seeing like a lot, a lot of improvement. She kind of starts to step away from the spotlight a little bit. Yeah, well, she's in 44, she would have been what? 60, 60, no, in her like 60s, 70s, early 70s. She's had a rather full life. She can, she can rest a little. Absolutely. She absolutely can. You can pass Uh, that baton. (laughs) I mean, her, none of her efforts are in vain. Like everything happens, feels like delayed by 20 years. In 1944, um, the government finally incorporates some of her sex education ideas into their, their kind of government educational plans. So she starts to see some of the fruits of all these labors after all these years, after all these radio shows, after all these. And she eventually dies. July 17th, 1950. 1950, 75 years old, all right. Yeah, I think like compared to a lot of broads we've covered on this podcast, it it brings me such joy when one of our broads is actually able to see the fruits of all their efforts in their lifetime. Because so many women that we talk about, we don't ever, they don't end up seeing their own success and and the ripples that they create. Um, And in the case of Paulina, I think she really... You know, she's considered kind of the foremost feminist voice of Uruguay um, and is kind of a national hero of sorts. And um, that's Dr. Paulina Luisi. That's what that's I've got today. wonderful. She's, yeah. she's awesome. Thank you for letting me know about her. She is a broad I should know. She is a broad that everybody should know. And, uh, you know, a South American broad, I'm always excited to be bringing in some, some other continents into the discussion because... I always get a little too, a little few too many North American bras because that's our place of origin here. But uh, yeah. she's fantastic. Thank you for joining me, Don, for this for this journey with <laughs> Dr. Luisi. <laughs> Dr. Luisi, thank you for inviting me along. Listeners, if you liked listening to this episode about Dr. Luisi, then I highly recommend you check out our website, broadsyoushouldknow.com. We've got pictures of her and other cool things we found online. We also have information about all the other broads that we've covered in the course of this podcast. You can check them out too. You also can click over to that about page. You can read more about Dawn and her podcast, 34 Circe Salon, as well as all the other amazing work that she does. Broads You Should Know is edited by Chloe Skye, and our music is by Darren Callahan. You should follow us on social if you haven't already, on Facebook and on Instagram at Broads You Should Know. And you can always email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. And listen, if you really like this podcast, 
The best two things you can do to support us is to share us with your friends. And if you leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're using, that really, really helps more people to find us that would like the kind of stories that we tell here. Then you should come back next week for another Broad You Should Know. Oh, and hey, if this episode about Dr. Paulina Luisi got you really excited and you want to hear more broads like her, I also recommend you check out some of our other broads we've covered. Especially in the medical field, we've got Dr. Jane Cook Wright, Mary Edwards Walker, and Florence Nightingale. And if you're really into the worldwide activism that Dr. Luisi did, then you also should check out our episode about Greta Thunberg. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>